you were listening to the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. Red Hill Church is a gospel-centered, missional church in the Edwardsville Glen Carbon community of the St. Louis Metro East. We exist to glorify God and make disciples by sharing the gospel and sharing our lives. Good to see everybody this morning. Um, we got uh, this worship gathering and one more here at the outlet. And then we're moving over to the box, Lord willing, and the uh, creek don't rise. So that's, uh, that's the plan. Anyway, the target date for our first service is May 7th, so you can pencil that in. If you show up here on May 7th at 9.30 a.m., you can probably get in and play some video games, but there's not going to be any worship service happening. So I want to really quickly just say thanks to everybody who's been part of volunteering up there. We've had so many people. Yep. And uh, yeah, those of you who aren't clapping haven't been there probably, uh, so you don't know what else has been going on. But just a few people I want to actually specifically call out, uh, Matt Pace, and then we have the, uh, the Rhyming Brothers, Nate and Tate, Ben Sidwell, Tom Thomas, those guys have all been working long and hard hours on concrete and electrician, uh, electrical stuff. Uh, Nikki Caribbean, Mindy McSparin, Janice Sidwell uh, provided a lot of snacks and food and drinks for everybody that was up there working. Alan Reams and the drywall crew, Jerry Rosentretter and the painting crew, Cody Azate and the outdoor crew, and there's uh, still room for all of you. So let us know if you'd like to be part of helping out and make sure you plan next week. Like, don't wear your nice clothes next week because next Sunday's moving Sunday. So we're going to be loading all this up and moving it over to the box and you're all invited. It's going to be great. Uh, if you're here and you don't get out fast, we will put big people at the door and make you stay and help us because we're in this thing together. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series through the book of Ephesians, which I am softly in pencil calling imitators and imposters. And we're going to be walking through that book of Ephesians. We're going to start next week because there's really nothing magical about being in a new place that means you should start something when you start in a new place. So we're starting next week because I want to get into this book and there's a lot to do and a lot to get through. And I thought it might be good for us to get some background of the church in Ephesus before we get to the letter that was written to the church in Ephesus. And so this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 18, verse 24, all the way through the end of chapter 20, even the first verse of chapter 21, where Paul sets sail, like he, he actually leaves Ephesus for the last time. And rather than have Liza read two and a half chapters of the Bible, I decided maybe it'd be good to just read the part that we're going to really focus on. The rest of it, we're just going to give some high points as we go. But a little information about Ephesus, it was the fourth largest city in the ancient world, with some 250,000 inhabitants. They worshiped the goddess Artemis. When Alexander the Great conquered that region, he offered to pay for the building of the temple to Artemis, and he was kindly rejected. Um, the Greeks called Artemis Diana, and they wanted to build their own temple, and the temple that they built was so magnificent that it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In fact, the temple that was built to Artemis was four times larger than the Parthenon in Greece. And some of you are like me and you're like, I don't know how big the Parthenon is, but I've heard of it, which means that temple was probably very big. And it was. They had a great amphitheater, which could seat 24,000 people. 24,000 seat outdoor amphitheater. That's very large. If we had high school graduations there, everybody could come. Everybody could get a ticket, not just two people. Um, Paul is on his, some of you have had people graduate from EHS, uh, got a good chuckle, I didn't expect that. Thought that was just going to be like an inside joke between me and my wife, but you're all welcome, you can come on in, okay? Uh, this is Paul's second missionary journey, so he's set sail once, set sail initially with Barnabas as his primary companion, but at the end of Acts chapter 15, he's ready to set sail again, and Barnabas says, hey, I think we should bring John Mark, and Paul says, I'm not bringing John Mark, because when things got hard, he quit. That's what happened to John Mark, was it got tough, and it got scary, and it got dangerous, and he was a new Christian, and he got discouraged, and he bailed out. Well, Barnabas, of course, isn't Barnabas' real name. It was just his nickname, because Barnabas means the son of encouragement. And the encourager that he is, he said, I'm going to go with John Mark. And Barnabas essentially sails off with John Mark, 
And that's the last we hear of Barnabas. Uh, Paul sails off with Silas and Timothy and Titus and a new band of missionaries is born. And by the way, I'd like to say that neither Paul nor Barnabas were wrong. They were just equipped and gifted differently. And at the end of Paul's ministry, he writes to Timothy and says, can you make sure you send John Mark to me because he's very useful to me. I need him. I need him around. I need him with me. The only reason that John Mark could be useful again was because someone went with him and cared for him and loved him and shepherded him back towards courage and strength in the faith. So if you've ever been discouraged or fallen in your faith, you're not alone. There's a guy in the Bible who did that same thing. In fact, there's a bunch of them. Pretty much everybody who's ever followed Jesus for any period of time, including his 12 disciples, has had those moments where you went through a season of doubt and discouragement. Well, if you're here this morning, you're in the right place, you're in a good place. We're going to walk through, so if you want to flip back a page or so into chapter 18, we're just going to kind of skip over a few sections, and I'm just going to give you a couple of touch points so that you have some frame of reference as to what's going on in Ephesus. And it starts in chapter 18 and verse 24, where we see, uh, it says, now a Jew named Apollos. This is the same Apollos that Paul would write to the Corinthians about. A dynamic communicator, probably a pretty young leader who's passionate and courageous and not really all the way informed about things, but ready and willing to get up and stand up and shout it from the rooftops. He's a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who is competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew John's baptism. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. So just really quickly, we have Apollos, Priscilla, and Aquila. Apollos is this young dynamic communicator who is intense and ignorant. And I want you to know right now, it is not a pejorative term. It's not a negative thing to be ignorant. It simply means you don't know. And it is more than okay for you to say, I don't know. And uh, listen, I'm also communicating to the mirror. I'm communicating to my own self. It's important for us to be able to have the humility and the self-awareness to say, I don't know. Apollos is getting up and boldly proclaiming what he does know. He knows about Jesus, he knows the Old Testament, and he knows about John's baptism, which at the beginning of chapter 19, when Paul gets to Ephesus, he says, have you guys received the Holy Spirit? They're like, we don't even know what a Holy Spirit is. It's like an R value. That was a joke for me and Ben Sidwell right there. We don't have, for my GC, we don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. All we have is John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance, which is great. It's important to repent. That's absolutely wonderful. But Jesus' baptism is a baptism of relationship. You know, when Paul writes his letters, he writes, oftentimes he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Rome, in Corinth. But he almost always, not every time, but he almost always says, you are also in Christ. One of the most popular things to be able to categorize a person in St. Louis is to ask them one simple question. I didn't understand the power of this question when I first moved to St. Louis, but I get it now. And the question, of course, is where did you go to high school? And when you tell me where you went to high school in St. Louis, there's all kinds of information that I am able to glean from that. Why? Because where you're from matters. It creates an identity for you. I remember when I went to college, I was from Oklahoma. I lived in Oklahoma all my life. I moved to Missouri, which is called the Show Me State. I sat down with a buddy of mine, we were playing some guitar together, and I began playing Creedence Clearwater Revival, bump, ba-da, bump, 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 and we got into an argument over the cadence that is to be played in that song. And I was like, bro, I grew up with an older brother who listened to classic rock 
all the time. I was raised on this, and I'm telling you, I know what Billy and the Dope Boys are playing. I know what's going on in this song. You've got to trust me. He's like, I don't trust you. We're in the show me state. you got to show me. So I did, right? And that was fine for him. And why do you need to be shown that? He's from the show me state. If you're from the show me state, there's something to that. You have to show me what's going on. You have to prove it. The places that you are from form you. If you are a Christian, then you are located in Christ. And that's supposed to form you. You're supposed to be in Christ, not adjacent to Christ. You are seated in him. You are placed in him. He says, I have all of them in my hand. We are in Christ. That's supposed to mean something about how we live, about how we think, about how we move, about how we speak, and about how we act. Apollos, courageous but ignorant. I hope that's not my phone. It's not me. And what happens? Well, uh, Priscilla and Aquila hear him. Priscilla and Aquila are a married couple who are tent makers, who became part of Paul's band and probably helped finance a lot of the missionary travels that he was taking. They were obviously well off because they could take time away from their business to travel the world and just be a part of telling people about Jesus. And they hear Apollo speak, and what do they do? Can I tell you, when you hear someone or see someone doing something and you know that they are ignorant, you have a couple of options. You can take shots at them, you can criticize them, you can unseat them and disqualify them, you can cancel them, you can talk badly about them behind their back, or you can pull them aside and help them. There are not a lot of courageous communicators of the gospel in the history of humanity. There just aren't. There aren't a lot of people that tell other people the good news about Jesus. There aren't a lot of people who stand up and say, this is what God says about heaven and about hell. And please, don't count me as one just because I stand up on a Sunday morning and do that. What makes us courageous is not doing that in safe spaces, but in the everyday spaces of our everyday lives. That's what makes us courageous. Not boldly proclaiming the gospel to a group that is largely already converted and already convinced, but standing up and proclaiming the gospel in hostile territory. And Apollos is doing that. Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and begin discipling him. They begin discipling him. And by the way, it's worth noting that Priscilla is mentioned first. That's the wife, not the husband. That usually indicates prominence in the activity, which means Priscilla may have, it's, it's very reasonable to believe, she may have been the one primarily teaching him about Jesus. Give help, not criticism, I guess that's what I'm saying. Apollo shows up, starts doing that in chapter 19. Paul shows up, you haven't, you haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit? Into what were you baptized? We were baptized into John's baptism. So Paul says, all right, well, we're going to fix that, and we're going to baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not just a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of relationship. When we baptize people at Red Hill, we say, and you've probably heard it said, you're buried with Christ. You're buried with him. You're literally joined with him in that death. And the hope that we share together in Christ is that we will also be joined together in his resurrection and seated with him in the heavenlies. So the baptism is not just me saying, I'm no longer going to be uh, living in submission to sin. I'm going to try to live in submission to Jesus. It's saying, I'm being brought into a family. I'm being brought into a family. So the Holy Spirit fills them and empowers them and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying and that prophesying that they're doing is not telling the future. It is proclaiming, thus saith the Lord. Here's the truth about who God is. Here's the truth about who Jesus is. They're just speaking it out loud. They're speaking in tongues. Listen, I'm Southern Baptist and you just have to deal with it. It's in the Bible, all right? You just have to deal with it. So you deal with it, and if you want to talk about it, I'm more than happy to, but I don't have time to preach about it this morning because I want to get to some demon possession stuff, and that sounds more interesting. (laughs) 
So Paul then starts doing Paul things. And what I mean by that, what does Paul do? Paul goes to a place, he finds the synagogue, he goes to the synagogue, he starts boldly proclaiming the truth about Jesus. The Jews that are there get mad at Paul and throw him out of the synagogue. So then he takes everybody that's become converted and they go into Gentile spaces. And he starts proclaiming the gospel in Gentile spaces. And he's sharing about Jesus and that everyone can receive forgiveness for sins and momentum starts building and they're in houses and lecture halls of Tyrannus. I don't know who he was or what his lecture hall looked like, but I'm assuming it's like an ancient Starbucks or something. I don't know for sure, but he's hanging out. He's persuading people. He's convincing people, and God is moving. And it says in verse 11, and this is where we're gonna kind of camp a little bit in 11 through 20. It says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is really incredible. This is when the gospel starts taking root in Ephesians. How does the gospel take root? How is a church planted? This is a question that's been on my mind, on Sarah's mind, since like 2014. How do you go to a place without relationships and see the gospel take root in that place? How do you go to a place where your church doesn't exist, and get it to a place where a church does exist. How do you move through that progression? I'm still asked if Red Hill is a church plant or if we are a planted church. And the truth is, I don't really know when the former ends or when the latter begins, and I don't really care. I don't, I don't really care if you feel like we're an established church, that's awesome. And if you feel like we're still a church plant, that's great. The general rule that we used for a long time was we would count how many people were there and then we'd be like, yeah, but this person and this person weren't there. And if those two families had been there, then we would have had this many people. Hi, Phoebe. So as long as we were still recognizing particular families that weren't there that were causing a decrease in our attendance, we thought of ourselves as a church plant. It seems as good of a reason as any. I don't, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. But how is the gospel going to take root in our midst? Here's what I know. Nothing spiritual, nothing powerful, Nothing good can be done by force of personality, by act of will, or by strength and talent. That's not how it happens. Only God can do it. I want you to say, only God can do it. it. Some of y'all didn't say it. Let's try it again. Only God can do it. Let's do it one more time together. Only God can do it. It's important for us to remember that. It's so important for us to remember that. You know why? Because life is unbearably brutal. It is unbearably difficult sometimes. We face challenges and questions and doubts and loss. We see things that we so deeply and desperately want to see fixed. We want to see injustices made right. We want to see brokenness healed. We want to see lost people come to faith. We want to see the gospel go forward. We want to see revival break out. We want to see wisdom be given to ourselves and to those whom we love. We want to know the right thing and be able to do the right thing. We want to have a a spiritual life that has some real power to it. That's not just routines. And the truth is that only God can do it. Verse 11 again, God was performing extraordinary miracles. God was performing extraordinary miracles. Not Paul. God was performing extraordinary miracles. And what was the vessel he was using? Of course, he was using Paul, right? You know what we need at Red Hill is not a building. It's nothing less than a move of God and a demonstration of his power. I was reminded of Habakkuk chapter three, verse two. In Habakkuk three, two, Habakkuk is praying. It says, a prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. And in your wrath, remember mercy. We've heard of your ancient work, God. 
We know of what you did in the olden days, Habakkuk says. Would you renew those works in our midst? Would you revive that inside of us? So God is performing extraordinary miracles, and of course he's performing those extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. Do you know why God is working through the Apostle Paul? Is because that's what he wanted to do all along. He wanted to use people. The Apostle Paul would write about this numerous times. He would say that the reason that God poured out his spirit into Paul and made him this mighty man of faith that we all revere, this guy that would write two-thirds of the New Testament, this guy that could take a sweat rag, toss it off to the side, and somebody suddenly is healed of a disease just because they touched the sweat rag that had touched Paul's skin, Paul said, the reason that God did that is because I was the worst person who ever lived, intentionally persecuting every Christian I could find, exalting myself, and believing that my own righteousness was what made me right with God. And God wanted to demonstrate his power. God wanted to show his mercy, his grace, and his goodness. So he took the worst and brought him to a place of prominence and power. He always wanted to use Paul And his plan all along was to use people. That's how God's going to demonstrate his mercy, his grace, and his power in our world today. Through you and through me. Through people. I mean, the incredible things. Even face claws, aprons that touched his skin are brought to the sick. And diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Apostle Paul, the original anointed prayer cloth. You know what I'm saying? This is, this is a grift now. This is a thing that TV preachers will sometimes do. It was more popular in the 80s and 90s than it is today, but they would sell anointed prayer cloths that supposedly they had anointed that could bring healing to your life. And if you would sow a seed of faith into their ministry, then God would sow into you this bountiful harvest of blessing. You give them a little bit of money, God gives you a lot of money. That doesn't sound like God to me. That sounds like some kind of a Ponzi scheme. It sounds too transactional and too base. You know what I'm saying? It's too basic. It's not grand enough. It's not big enough. It's not bold enough. And it's not helpful enough. You know why? Because there have been times when I had no money and times when I had too much money. And you know what I discovered? I'm still the same guy in both of those instances. We have listed here just a few examples. How does a person get that kind of power? Can anybody get that kind of power? What do you need to do to have that kind of power? And we see in verses 13 through 17, seven guys try to co-opt that power. This is great. This is, one of those, this is one of those texts in the Bible. There's a particular word in here that if you have children under the age of about, I'm going to say 46 because that's how old I am, when they hear the word, they're going to giggle at it and they're going to say it a few times more today. So just full disclosure, but yeah, take it up with God because he wrote the Bible, not me. It says, now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. If you don't know what an itinerant Jewish exorcist is, think of like a traveling nurse. But instead of medicine, you just travel around and charge people money to cast out their demons. So that's itinerant just means you travel place to place. So these guys travel place to place to do exorcisms. It's a living, I guess. They attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And I don't, I don't know for sure if they couldn't say the name Jesus properly. I think it means they're trying to take that power, the power that's in that name, and pronounce that authority over those demons. They're saying, these seven sons of Siva, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. These seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. I command you, by the name of Jesus, that this guy Paul that I met talks about a lot. Get out of that guy. We're trying a new thing. The oil isn't working today. We did our thing like this. You know, we karate chopped you. I don't know what they did. I mean, they're itinerant Jewish exorcists. 
that had to be an interesting job. I don't know what they did, but at some point they ran out of juice and they're like, that seems to be working. So let's proclaim the name of Jesus that that guy Paul is talking about. What would you have said? What? Listen, today you wake up from your nap, you stretch a little bit, and it's one of those naps that you wake up from and you're like, why do I hate everything? <laughs> Naps are supposed to be restorative, and all they have done is stoke the fire of my hatred. It's all that is restored. I am renewed in my hatred for life and all things. And you walk outside, and your neighbor's like, hey, man, can you come over here and help me with something real quick? And you're like, yeah, absolutely, thinking that you're going to have to move a refrigerator now, just reinforcing your hate fire. And you get in, and he's like, nah, nah, my, uh, my kid's got a demon. I need you to cast it out. What would you say? You're there. You are a Christian. These guys aren't even Christians. At least they're taking a shot. They're not throwing away their shot. What would you have said? Would you have the courage to face off with a demon? Because I, wa I want you to, to really know that demons are real. This, this isn't make-believe. This isn't fan fiction. It's not like Luke wrote to Theophilus in, in Luke part two here in Acts and was like, you know what? <sighs> Ever since Jesus left, things have gotten a little boring, so we're gonna spice it up with some demon possession. This is real stuff that really happened and really happens, and if you came face-to-face -face with it, what would you say? What would you do? Be honest with yourself, at least. I don't need you to shout it out. You know, only God can do it, maybe sufficient for you. But if you came face to face with it and someone needed you to do something about it, what would you say? Here's what the seven sons of Siva say. We command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out. Well, the evil spirit answered them. This is when it always gets interesting. You know what I'm saying? I know Jesus. Here's what the evil spirit says. I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? I know Jesus. I recognize Paul, but who are you? There's a guy named Simon in the Bible who was a magician. He goes up to the apostles after they perform some miracles, and he says, how much money would it take for me to be able to get that power? And the answer comes back, you might be a demon because this can't be bought. This kind of power can't be bought. This kind of power can't be earned. This kind of power can't be co-opted. Proximity to power doesn't make you powerful any more than proximity to professional sports would make me able to dunk a basketball. <laughs> it's not how it works. Meeting an actor doesn't make you an actor. Meeting Albert Pujols won't make you hit home runs. I've shaken his hand. I played baseball for a long time, a lot of years, all the way up until I was like nine. <laughs> Never hit a single home run. I mean, when I was nine, I think I weighed 38 pounds, so I'm surprised I got it off the tee, to be honest. Traveling to Guatemala won't make you a Spanish-speaking person. All you'll do is start speaking English with a bad Spanish accent. That's all that happens. Took a group to Mexico once and we were laughing about it. And as we were leaving a restaurant, after laughing about it, one of the guys with us, a guy, we'll call him Dave, because that's his name, is walking out of the restaurant and he bumps into a waiter and he goes, Sadi. <laughs> that's not Spanish. That's an American word. I'm not even sure if it's English. Saying sadi doesn't mean they will understand it. I once tried to do a backflip when I was in fifth grade. My elementary school had this really great tumbling program, and uh, I saw all these girls doing a backflip, and I was like, if a girl can do it, I can do it. I found out I'm half as good as a girl. And I've deteriorated since then, by the way, because I could do half of a backflip. No one had trained me, no one had taught me, no one was spotting me. I went into my backyard, this is a true story. I went in my backyard when I was in fifth grade, decided I'm gonna do a backflip. I jumped in the air after psyching myself up. Like I, I, no, okay, not ready, right? You know, like a few times, cause it's a backflip. And I jumped and did half a backflip and landed on my head. 
Can't do a backflip. I tried to replace a window in my home recently. You know what I found out? Watching one YouTube video does not make you a construction expert. (laughs) Have you guys ever heard of ripsticks? You know what ripsticks are? Well, I'm pretty bad at four-wheel skateboards. By pretty bad, I mean I can stand on it for a second or so. A ripstick is a two-wheeled skateboard. And here's how it went. I was in my 30s and still thought I was young. And I was a youth pastor, which reinforced that faulty opinion. And the teenagers were riding these ripsticks. And the, the thing sits like this, right? And it's just got two little scooter wheels that spin in all directions. And the teenagers were like, it's real easy. You lean your he- uh, heels back, and then you just swivel your hips. And I'm like, okay. And I leaned my heels back, and that board went whoom. And it was like a half backflip again, but it was just a quarter this time. I just like full on, head on the concrete, not wearing a helmet. I can't ride a ripstick. You know what happens to me every single time that I get close to somebody who can do something well, and I think just by observation, I am able to do that thing myself. You know what happens to me? Pain. Every single time. It's not always physical pain. Sometimes it's financial pain. Sometimes it's relational pain. Sometimes it's emotional pain. Sometimes it's spiritual pain. Sometimes it's academic pain. But it's always the same for me. It's always pain. These seven sons of Siva are just like me and they're just like you and they're just like us because they want to imitate results instead of embodying the habits, practices, and patterns that produce results. We want to imitate the results. I want to imitate the results. I watched this guy. He took a window out. He went to Home Depot and bought a window and he put the window in and the job is done. So what did I do? I took the window out. Then I went and bought a window and it didn't fit. So I cut into some of the concrete. Yeah, I cut into some of the concrete in my basement wall after watching part of one YouTube video. Can you imagine being married to me? Please (laughs) hug my wife, pray for her, encourage her. And then I was like, oh, it's just the wrong size window. Eight windows later, and with the help from someone who had actually done it before, I discovered the problem wasn't even the window. It's the grating around the house. So then I dug up, I didn't, I didn't, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't, because my wife helps me and was like, please, please, we only have so much money. Please don't go buy a skid steer or a front end box thingy that digs out dirt. I know what I'm talking about. I've seen part of a YouTube video. We want to imitate the results. We do this as kids. You can watch kids do this. What do they do? They see somebody doing something really well, and so then they go buy the shoes. They mimic the pre-shot routine. They do the same thing before the free throw. Why? They want the same results. But there are habits and practices and patterns that have to be implemented over a long period of time before you get those kinds of results. Verses 16 and 17, it says, then the man, one guy, one evil spirit. The man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. One demon-possessed guy beats the dog out of seven itinerant Jewish exorcists. Those dudes got beat so bad, they ran out of that house with nothing but their shame and their bruises. That's all they had. This one dude jumps on them, beats them down so badly that he, he hockey jerseys those guys. All seven of them. He's got the jersey up and he's just pounding them. And they're like, we got to get out of here. And so they run out of the house, humiliated and naked. That's in the Bible. 
One demon-possessed guy does that. What happens next? It says, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. I think part of it was a fear of God. Part of it was an awe about Jesus. And part of it was because there were seven naked itinerant Jewish exorcists, bloody and bruised, running around the city now. Somebody needs to help those guys. And it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. The results, first, the results, the first one, an impression was made. An impression was made. Second, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. You don't take it lightly, in other words. You don't just toss it about. You don't just slap a label on your chest that says Christian and then go and do and live as if the God that we love and serve has no eyes to see and no ears to hear. You can't just take his name and apply it to anything you want to put it on. And then the third result we see in the following verses. Revival breaks out. It says, many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. Revival breaks out. Many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing. These are people who had already believed in Jesus. Revival, by the way, is not for lost people. Revival is for saved people. People who haven't been vived cannot be revived. If you have not come to life in Jesus, then you cannot have that life revived inside of you. Some of y'all just need vival. But a lot of us need some revival. We are like David who said, Restore unto me, O God, the joy of my salvation. Do you remember what it felt like to be you, lost and hopeless in sin, and then found by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, given mercy and grace, brought into a family, and having the weight of your sin quite literally lifted off of you, the burden gone. Do you remember what that felt like? For many of us, it's just so long in the past. And the patterns of daily life are so easy to get into that we've just lost it. But after this beatdown, after this beatdown, people who were believers in Jesus, people who had given their lives to Jesus came confessing and disclosing. Confession is always the beginning of revival. The beginning of revival is not moving music. The point of our worship is not to get everybody just pumped up and excited. We want to be pumped up and excited, but not because of music, but because we are drawing close to Jesus. And when you get close to Jesus, you come alive. You come alive. So revival breaks out. And by the way, confession leads to repentance. Confession always leads to repentance. If confession doesn't lead to repentance, then you aren't confessing. You're just talking about stuff. Like you can say like, well, I'm, a, I'm addicted to pornography, but uh, I mean like, I don't know what to do about it. That's not confession. That's conversation. Confession is saying, God, what you say about this is what I say about this, which means I have to change my life. I have to make some changes. Repentance is action-oriented. Confession is verbal. It's homologeo. That's, what it, that's a Greek word. It's a compound word. It means saying the same thing. The idea is that you are saying about something the same thing that God says about that thing. So when God says something is sin, confession is just you agreeing with him. It's just you saying, yes, I agree that that is sin. But repentance is saying, so now I have to make some changes. And by the way, guys, repentance is usually radical. It's usually radical. Sometimes 
You do one thing and you go, I don't want to do that anymore and I'm stepping away from it. But oftentimes, for most people, we fall into ruts. One of my old pastors used to say, a rut ain't nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. It's a place you go to die. It's a place your faith goes to die. You get into a rut. You are discouraged, you're down, you're defeated, and you just keep running the same broken play over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. I was talking to a guy once who was addicted to pornography. He was looking at thousands of images a night. And I said, just break your computer. He's like, well, I have to have a computer. And I said, for what? For homework. You can come to my office every day after school. You can have full access to my computer while I sit here with you. Well, I'm not going to do that. Okay. John Owen, the author of the beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, was not soft on action. He said, be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. When I was in Africa for the first time, we went to a lion preserve and we went into one of these cages and there were two guys holding M16s, which was pretty you know, scary in its own right. <clears throat> but we walk in and these uh, lions, there was lions, there was like a hyena and something else was in there. I don't remember what the other thing was because there were lions. So it's like, that's the kind of the thing that you focus on. But they were about the size of Labradors. They were between three and six months old. And we're walking around and you can like pet the lions, you know, sort of, uh, and you're trying to like not get eaten and you're remembering there are two dudes in there with automatic weapons just in case something goes wrong. And one of the idiots that's with us grabs a lion by the face and starts nuzzling his face like you do to a dog to get it to try to, you know, play with you, like playfully bite at you. He's nuzzling the face of this lion and the guy with the gun walks over to him and goes, sir, it's still a lion. He's like, oh yeah, and then backed away, right? But you and I, we take this sin, which the Bible says leads to death. We listen to this tempter that the Bible says wants to steal everything you love, wants to kill everything good inside of you, wants to destroy everything of purpose and value that you care about. And we go, maybe I can just like nuzzle the face a little. Maybe I'll just, like, I'll just make a little bit of room for a little bit of this activity. What do they do? They come with 50,000 silver coins. How much is that? It's a lot. That's how much it is. It's a lot. I don't know. I don't care if it was $10 billion or $10 million or $10,000. is a lot of money to all of them. They took it and they burned the books. I'm not advocating that you burn books. Okay, it's not, this is not a Nazi thing. I'm not saying, go burn all your bad book. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is if there's something in your life that is killing you spiritually, you must take radical steps to have victory. You must take radical steps to have victory. And as a church family, we have to stop treating confessors as if they are the anomaly and the broken ones. Because confessors are the victorious ones. Because how do we win? We don't win by effort. We don't win by our goodness. We don't win by, uh, by our knowledge. We don't win by our money. We don't win by our power. We win because Jesus has already conquered the enemy. The enemy has been defeated. We have been made victorious. But even victorious people sometimes doubt, sometimes fail, and sometimes fall. And how do we become victorious again? Not by renewed effort, but by revived lives by a work of the spirit inside of us you be killing sin or sin will be killing you the fourth result of this demon possessed whooping is that the word of the lord flourished and prevailed verse 20 in this way the word of the lord flourished and prevailed it flourished and it prevailed I was talking with Cody about the outside plan for uh, the box, how we're going to do the landscaping. And he was talking about the importance of planting a bunch of plants and trees and shrubberies and other organic matters that we want to have in close enough proximity to each other that they can prevent the weeds from ever even growing, making it less maintenance work for all of us. And I was like, well, I like 
the sound of that because growing up a punishment in my house was to go out and weed the garden. And so I really, really hate weeding the garden. Like, re- like least favorite thing to do, weed the garden. I'd rather raise the garden, just burn it to the ground. How do we have the word of the Lord flourish and prevail in our midst? Because this is, this is how the church starts in Ephesus. Right here, these moments. Paul preaching in the synagogue, being kicked out, preaching in the Gentile areas in the hall of Tyrannus, God doing mighty work through Paul, the Jewish exorcists try to cast out a demon and the demon-possessed guy beats a dog out of him and then people start responding and saying, we can see that there's something unique and powerful about the name of Jesus. Lost people and saved people alike begin acknowledging I am not valuing his name the way that I am supposed to. And so they repent. They take action in their lives. They confess, they disclose, and they repent. They act. So five steps, five things that we can do. And to be a Southern Baptist preacher, I have all of them starting with the letter P. That's called an alliteration. Thank you very much. The first one is this, personal experience. You have to have personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't just watch YouTube videos about him. You can't just show up to worship gatherings where people talk about him and sing about him. You can't just have a grandma that loved him. You can't just throw money into a box. You can't just give verbal assent. You can't just give intellectual assent. You have to personally experience him. You have to have him. There has to be a personal experience. Secondly, he has to have preeminent authority. He's not gonna be satisfied with second place in your life. God is not interested in being part of your life. He's not interested in being most of your life. He's not interested in being the main thing in your life. He wants to be your life. He wants your life oriented around him, living in submission to him. Well, I don't wanna submit to him. That's fine, then you're not a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to say, I have submitted myself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And by the way, the servant is not above the master, and you and I are not above Jesus Christ, who came in flesh and submitted himself to the will of the Father. He modeled it for us. He did it for us. God has to have preeminent authority in your life. There has to be a practical application of that too. (laughs) A practical application. You know what that means? It's got to matter on a Tuesday. You don't got to be courageous with my stuff. You don't, buy, you don't need to be combative with my sin. You got to be courageous and combative with your own sin and your own stuff. It's got to have some practical application. It should mean something in your life. Our community doesn't need another church in another building. It doesn't need another preacher. It doesn't need another good band that can play good worship music. It doesn't need another comedian. It doesn't need one more people gathered together on Sunday mornings in one particular geographic location. But it does desperately need people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. And we will overcome, not by the beauty of the box, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how we overcome. That's the song we sing in in eternity over and over again. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Which of course means there has to be some public proclamation. We doubled up on that one. Public proclamation. What does that mean? At some point, you're going to have to say it out loud. There's a quote that is wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Okay. All right. I get it. I'm a pastor. I've lived a decent life. I've never had a single person observe my life and be like, you know what? Just by observing your life, I have learned that I am a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus Christ has provided the payment for my sins that I can trust him that that payment was good and that I can be made right with God. Thank you for living that good of a life. Preach the gospel, and because it's necessary, use words. Use words. Be courageous. And guess what? 
you're going to get some of it wrong. And guess what? So did Apollos. And he's got a pretty good place in the Bible. And those who step forward courageously, God sends help. He sends us help. He helps us in the midst of our weakness. You know what we want? Here's what we want. We want the weakness curve to look like this. In my weakness, God makes me then powerful and perfects his strength through me. That's the assumption that we make, isn't it? His power is perfected through my weakness. So I get to my weakness and then I get back to my strongness and his power is perfected as I'd move from weakness to strongness. But that is not the idea. The idea is that you and I are on this endless cycle of weakening the flesh and saying, I don't know how. How am I supposed to? This is too much for me. And you start sounding like the Bible when guys say, we hold these treasures in earthen vessels, jars of clay. Who's sufficient for these things? I have to decrease, he has to increase. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. I count my life as rubbish. Although there's all kinds of things that I could boast about instead, I glory in my weakness. I'm not trying to be clever with you. I'm not trying to be smart. I'm not trying to be winsome and wise. I'm trying to be plain spoken because I want the power of God to be evident, not because of me, but just quite simply through me, just as one particular vessel. At some point, guys, at some point, you just have to say it out loud. It's going to sound real dumb the first time you say it in your own ears. But don't you know how you got here, follower of Jesus? Don't you know how you got, think about your own path here. Did you become a follower of Jesus without somebody else giving some words? Did you trust Jesus just because somebody lived such a good life? Didn't, at some point, didn't someone tell you about their faith in Jesus? Didn't someone open up a Bible and share a verse with you or offer to pray with you and for you? You have to say it out loud. And then the fifth thing is this, you have to prioritize holiness. You have to prioritize holiness. You know why? Because if the power of God and the glory of God and the goodness of God and the gospel of God are going to be manifested in the world today, they're going to be manifested through people. The Apostle Paul said, it's as if God is making his very appeal through us. The appeal of the gospel to our community is going to be made through us. Or, for many people that you know and that I know, it just won't be made at all. Paul would say to the Romans, how will they believe if they have not heard? The answer, of course, is they just won't. They just won't. Well, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 21, after these events, Paul decides to go to Macedonia. He loops back around, and uh, he loops, as he loops back around, he finds out that these guys are now being called followers of the way, and there's a silversmith who's real mad because he'd been making idols, and now there are so many Christians that his business is starting to suffer a little bit. Wouldn't it be great if so many people became Christians that the strip clubs in East, in East St. Louis shut down because there was just nobody left to go to them? Wouldn't that be wonderful, right? If, if so many people's lives were transformed by the gospel, that the economy changed, that's what happens. And this guy who's a silversmith gets ticked off about it. And so he starts stirring up all this hatred and anger. And he's like, these guys have turned over the whole world. They're, they're messing with everything that we care about. And basically everybody in the city just starts giving this guy harumphs. You know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah, harumph, harumph, I'm with you, yeah. And they start gathering by the thousands into the great theater and the, the account says, a lot of them don't even know why they're there. 
It's just confusion and chaos and rage. Probably all of them had just woken up from that nap that you'll take later this afternoon. And everybody's mad. And they don't even know what they're mad about. So then they all start ch- chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the, for, for hours, for hours. And what is the claim that this guy makes? What the silversmith, the thing that he says is he says, here's what they're saying about us, guys. They're saying that the stuff that we make with our hands isn't really God's. Yeah, it's not, right? I mean, I'm, I can make a Play-Doh snake. That's not a God. It's just a Play-Doh snake. So financial disruption, rioting, and then finally, they send Paul off. They move on. Paul and company sail around and make disciples. That's the first part of chapter 20. And then in verse 17, Paul returns to Ephesus to say goodbye. He spent three years in Ephesus. I believe it's more time than he spent with any other church that was planted. By the way, Ephesus will get one of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And they get a lot of praise, but you know what happened to them is they forgot their first love. And I don't want to steal the thunder of that because we're going to preach that passage as part of our Ephesians series. We should get the beginning, the middle, and the end. But Paul loved these guys. He said in verse 24, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. He says in the same passage, I told you everything. I didn't hold anything back from you. I told you everything that God wanted me to tell you. I hope that I'm able to say that about Red Hill when my time to pass from this life comes. I told you everything. I didn't shrink back from anything. Everything that I thought God wanted you to hear, I said it. Everything that could be of spiritual value to you, even the stuff that's wounding, I said it. I hope I'm able to say that same thing. And I hope I'm able to say that same thing about my friends, my family, and my neighbors who don't know Jesus. I didn't hold back from you. I told you the truth. I actually told you. I didn't think about my own life. Paul would say, everywhere I go now, the Holy Spirit tells me there's only one thing that's waiting for me, prison and chains. And he just kept going. It's not easy to be a person who follows Jesus but it's easier than the alternative. In verse 28, he gives the charge to the elders of the church in Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Josh and Stephen and myself, we have to remind ourselves. Red Hill doesn't belong to us. It was purchased with the blood of Jesus. And then at the end of the chapter, After he said all this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. In chapter 21 and verse 1, Luke writes, After we tore ourselves away from them, we set sail. That's the beginnings of the church in Ephesus. So a few things I want to ask you as we move into a moment of response. Are you an imitator of Jesus or are you an imposter? It's an easy thing to fix. You just join the team. You get out of the stands and you come be on the team. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11.1. And by the way, in Ephesians 5.1, Paul would write to the church in Ephesus, be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be an imitator, not an imposter. Has the gospel taken root in you? And have you taken root into a local church? The local church is a bride, not a girlfriend. It's not a place you casually date. You should invest your life should give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. If not here, somewhere. There are, there are lots of great churches, and I don't say that in any way that's like meant to push anybody away, but to say, I'll help you. If this isn't the right place for you, that's okay. I'll help you. I'll help you find a place that's the right place for you because you belong to Jesus, not to me. That's every single person here. You belong to Jesus, not to me, and I belong to Jesus and not to you, but by God's grace, 
we've given ourselves to each other. But let's do it. Let's really do it. Let's go all in together. Acts 3.19, there's a really cool moment after the gospel is proclaimed. They ask the preachers of the gospel, what are we supposed to do? And Peter says to them, repent and return that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If your spiritual life feels dry, distant, dark, discouraged, the answer is not music, the answer is not preaching, the answer is not giving or serving, the answer is repentance. Returning to the presence of the Lord, that's where you find the refreshing, nowhere else. Let me pray for us. I'll be available to pray with you, to talk to you, to counsel you, to encourage you. I'll be over on the side, over by where Phoebe is right now. Hi, Phoebe. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Paul's courage. How he imitated Jesus. We want to imitate him as he imitated you. We need a lot of help, a lot of help. thankful that we don't have a high priest unable to sympathize but one who was tested and tempted in every way and was without fault one upon whom we can cast every anxiety and care because he, he actually cares for us you actually care for us we love you we long for revival in our own lives our families and in our church let it start here with us, God, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. When you're ready, you can take the Lord's Supper. I'll be available to talk and pray with anybody who'd like to. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Red Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about this message, our church, or the gospel, or if you'd like to get in touch with one of our elders, you can visit our website at www.redhill.church. Navigate to the I'm New tab and click the option for Connection Card. Filling out this online card will allow you to get in touch with us and one of our elders will follow up as soon as possible. Thanks for listening and be sure to check back next week as we continue to study and apply God's word together.